Hey, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the MLB Pipeline podcast. I'm Jason Ratliff here with Jim Callis and Jonathan Mayo. We are less than two weeks away from the beginning of the 2021 draft. We're going to jump into that, talk about last week's inaugural MLB Combine. Uh, We are going to talk about some guys who stood out there. We typically do a five guys who segment. We're going to give you a little bonus coverage this week. We're going to do eight guys who stood out at the Draft Combine. We'll also give you a little preview uh, of College World Series, a prospect preview, look at some of the top prospects involved in the College World Series. We have an interview with D-back scouting director Derek Ladner, and we will introduce you to the newest members of the Top 100 Prospects list, Gabrielle Marino and Nick Prado, and we'll wrap it up by answering some of your questions in the mailbag. Jim and Jonathan, two weeks away. Uh, I'm sure this is going to be a uh, quiet, relaxed fortnight for the two of you. I was going to take some time off. Would that be okay? That's fine. All right. We're all good. I, it's just weird. Uh, and we actually talked about this, you know, in my conversation with Derek Ladner, just how strange this time has been for everybody who is involved in the draft in any way, shape or form. It's just kind of kind of strange, a little bit of calm before the storm in terms of information flowing. Uh, but, you know, I think all teams will be starting to get in meetings as we flip to July here and, you know, get uh, closer to the to the start of that July 11th, uh, the first round of the draft. But uh, I don't know, it feels a, it's a little weird. And, you know, I think it would have felt weird, you know, talking to teams about this, guys. It would have felt weird anyway, you know, if we were just coming off a normal year. But coming off of, of COVID and, and most amateur and, and minor league things getting shut down last year and the calendar's changing, you know, the minor league season's been pushed back. It's just been – everybody's still kind of trying to figure out what you should be doing when. And, and this is kind of a weird – I mean, talking to some of the scouts we talked to, Jonathan, I mean, I have guys who are looking at 2022 guys on the Cape, 2021 guys on the Cape – you know, trying to go to some events for next year to, to get a sense of next year's guys. I, I've talked to guys at the kind of at the special assistant level who do draft stuff. And they're kind of like, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing right now because we haven't even had draft meetings yet. And I usually, you know, would go hit the Cape, but I also got to be looking at guys for trades, um, you know, at the major league level. So uh, it, it is, it, it just, I, I think it was going to be strange anyway. And you throw coming off of COVID on top of it. And it's just made it even, just even odder kind of trying to get back in the swing of things. Cause nothing seems to be at the right time that, that or at least the time that we're accustomed to. And a big new addition to the calendar uh, last week, Major League Baseball's first ever draft combine. Jim, you were there for the entirety. Well, not not quite. Almost. Almost. Left a day early. Had to get out. How dare you? you, I I will blame our cohorts or MLB Network for telling me to leave on Friday. So I left Saturday morning. But They had all they could take. Yes. Um, So you you were there for nearly the entire thing. Um, So give us your firsthand first impressions of the MLB, MLB draft combine. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot going on. Um, I don't know if the final count ever changed, but there were 169 players uh, scheduled to be in attendance, and that might have changed a little bit. But there were a lot of players there. Um, Varying levels of participation. Uh, You had most of the top, top prospects did not participate in on-field stuff. 
Um, some did more on the college side, which just consisted of essentially taking BP and maybe a little in, in and out or, or throwing behind the plate or, or throwing a five minute bullpen. You know, the high school guys, they did play. They, they were scheduled to play six, seven inning games. Weather didn't really cooperate. So they got three of those in. Um, they did a live BP for fourth one and they had to scrap two. But like you had kind of the mid-level high school players got to show what they could do in a game setting. And that, that was kind of fun to watch. Um, you know, my, my sense from talking to teams was they thought that the most valuable part of the whole process were the interviews with players. You could, you could set up 20 interview, 20 minute interviews with, with players. Um, you know, especially coming off COVID, you didn't have as many meetings, especially face to face as you would have in past years. And I think people really appreciated that, you know, and mo well, most of the guys or a lot of the guys at the combine were either guys who maybe their springs didn't go exactly like they wanted, or, you know, maybe they're just kind of in that murky fourth to seventh round range. And if you're a high school guy, like that may not make you signable and you got, you know, guys could kind of explain what happened and, and stand up for themselves a little bit. So I know teams love the interview process. Um, I think, as a whole, it was a very well-run event. Like, like just the, the players I talked to uh, seemed to like, you know, the, what they had an opportunity to do, whether it was working out on the field, doing the athletic performance testing, medical testing, interviews, you know, what have you. You know, the players were allowed to choose what they wanted, and they all seemed pretty, you know, pretty positive experience. I thought the broadcast went well. Obviously, I didn't watch it because I was part of it, the five-hour broadcast on Friday. But I think that was a big thing, guys, for this event was to have it be a first-class event so you will have these 169 players go out and tell their friends and teammates. And, you know, some of these guys, high school players are probably going to go to college and they tell their college teammates, that, hey, it was a pretty good experience. So I think that will kind of help the, help keep the ball rolling uh, in, in terms of this event getting bigger and growing and getting more players. You know, they're going to have to maybe make some adjustments to try to get more guys to participate in the on-field stuff. Um, and the on-field stuff, I'm talking to teams – I mean, look, scouts like to watch players, so, like, it was fine. But I think the general sense was, you know, there were maybe a handful of players to help themselves. But for the most part, these are all guys who've been scouted for a year. Um, and they were pretty well known. So I, I don't think a lot of guys really altered the course of their draft destiny, or at least their 2021 draft destiny, with, with what they did taking BP or throwing a bullpen or, or playing in a, in a high school game. Um, but it was still nice to, to see the guys up close. And if there's a guy you were bearing down on, it, it gave you another opportunity to do that. All right. So headed into the combine and as you noted, Jim, uh, things kind of changed in terms of how many players attended and how many players, uh, were partaking in, uh, the various, uh, different activities. Uh, but going into it, there were two dozen players ranked in our top 100 draft prospects list, uh, or the top 250 draft prospects list, tw uh, 24 from the top 100. There were 74 from the top 250. Uh, we are going to break down eight players who helped themselves, or I guess we're not saying help themselves exactly, but who stood out um, and potentially could have helped themselves at the draft combine. Um, looking at this group of players, so they're, all eight of them are ranked uh, in the top 250. Um, I believe all of them are within the top 200, if I'm not mistaken. Um, a mix of college players and high school players and a mix of position players and, and pitchers. 
Jim, before we get into the individual players, I wanted to ask you, was it was it easier in any way for either the position players or the pitchers to stand out at this event? Um, I think maybe for the pitchers on the high school side who participated in games, because other you know, the college pitchers and some of the high school pitchers just threw bullpens and they threw for five minutes and they threw 15 or 20 pitches and you know you don't really get any feedback other than oh that was 96 or that was 92 or hey there was spin on that one it was a good spin rate you know so i think you know we'll talk about brock selvage in a minute but like actually got you know the pitchers who pitched in games i think could stand out a little bit more other than that it was essentially watching pitchers throw for five minutes and, and watching guys take bp um you know i think the BP is probably a little bit easier to impress, you know, the naked eye because you could see how far the ball's going. But yeah, I mean, it was, you were essentially, it was fun to watch these things. But, you know, as we talk about like the college players, I mean, how many times have you seen these college guys take BP during the season? A lot. So it, it wasn't necessarily a lot that was new to you. All right. So let's start off with one of those guys who did impress in BP, uh, Alex Benellis of Louisville. Yeah, he was he was one of the first in the I think not the first group on Friday, but maybe the first group on Friday when they began the broadcast at 1 p.m. Eastern. And, you know, he's he's one of the best college hitters in the draft, power hitters in the draft. And, you know, we had him ranked in our top 10 coming into this year and he was terrible. He hit 155 with one homer in his first 18 games, wound up you know hitting 256 at season end, 17 homers in his last 32 games, three in, in one contest at the ACC tournament. And, you know, he put on a show. I, I, I was not because we were <laughs> broadcasting and coming in and out, tracking what everybody was doing, but he, he crushed several balls over the right field wall at the USA Baseball National Training Complex. He hit the farthest ball, was 446 feet. He had the highest average exit velocity, the highest maximum exit velocity, and generally, you know, put on one of those batting practice shows. And it's, you know, with him, you know, you talk about guys standing out or helping themselves. I mean, people knew who Alex Benellis was. You know, he kind of rallied after that slow start. I I think there's a chance because I think the first round's unsettled that maybe he sneaks into the back of the first round or he's a sandwich pick. Um, You know, I don't know that, that taking this impressive BP really moves the needle for him. But if you're one of those teams that's, th- that's maybe higher on him than others or thinking maybe we'll take him in the 20s or the 30s, you know, you, you felt good by, you know, seeing Alex do what he does best, which is crush the ball. Yeah, his name is all over, uh, Jim, your story on the, the leaders and the metrics on, on Friday. Uh, six out of the 10 uh, hardest hit balls, uh, and, as well as several of the uh, uh, furthest hit balls as well. Um, another name on that list, uh, several times is Denzel Clark of Cal state Northridge. Yeah, he's, he's really interesting. I think this, this event, uh, I mean, obviously because he performed well, but you know, was a really good opportunity for him because he, he was a guy who wasn't seen a lot outside of area scouts, uh, especially early. I think, you know, he started to get more attention later on as he, as he heated up and, super toolsy has a chance to play center field you know, finish the year with decent numbers 324 445 570 slugging and 15 steals at cal state northridge but you know i think sort of higher ups didn't see him i don't think it was cross-checked as much 
as norm as normal uh you know you normally would have a college bat so for him to come and and he was you know one of one of the best hitters in terms of average distance and hard hit percentages uh he he was close to Pinellas and and average exit velocity uh you know he was able to show off in front of all you know all 30 teams uh so i think it was, he was a guy who probably already raised his profile uh, you know, a bit as the spring wore on and, you know, the dearth of college bats certainly, uh, certainly helps him. And I think he's one of those, you know, rare, rare college players with, uh, with some upside and some ceiling because of those tools. Yeah. And I was gonna say, Jonathan, you, you were exactly right on him not getting cross-checked much because of the restrictions of California, Cal State Northridge only played 40 games this year, which is about 15 to 20 less, more than most colleges. And he got off to a super slow start. So it wasn't exactly – you weren't exactly clamoring, you know, hey, I've got to get my cross-checker and come see this guy while he's hitting 180. So for a, for a college guy, he had a lot less exposure – than, than, than your typical college guy, especially in, you know, the Big West Conference is a major conference. Um, and, and so this was a great opportunity for him to get seen a little bit more by, by guys who maybe didn't get a chance to see him during the season. And on Friday, uh, he hit the ball as hard as anyone in the BP session. Average exit velocity, 98.2 miles per hour, which was tied uh, with Benellis, who had the exact same average exit velocity. Uh, Clark did that on 17 batted balls, uh, Benellis 34. Next name on our list is Mason Miller, the first pitcher on our list. And by the way, we're just going in alphabetical order here. But Mason Miller, number 159 on our top 250 prospects list, right-hander out of Gardner-Webb. Yeah, he, he, he'd be on my list if we were doing if – we, if we did five most interesting guys in the draft, he'd be one of them for me uh, off our top 250 list. Um you know, I think there were nine pitchers. I counted nine. Yeah, there were nine pitchers who threw bullpens during the broadcast on Friday, and he was clearly the best guy for whatever you want to make out of a, a bullpen workout. But he he threw seven fastballs, and they were seven of the eight fastest pitches recorded. He averaged ninety eight point two miles an hour, topped out at ninety nine point one. He had the highest spin rate on on his fastball, a little over twenty five hundred um, on that. And and he's another guy. He he's a guy who's going to go pretty early in the draft because he's talented. And he's heavily discountable. He's a fifth-year college guy. He started his college career at, at Division Three Waynesburg in Pennsylvania. Jonathan is our resident Pennsylvanian. Do you know where Waynesburg is? I have no idea where Waynesburg, Pennsylvania is. Um, I do not off the top of my head. Okay. So anyway, needless to say, not a not your typical baseball power. And he, he got kind of rocked for two years. And then he was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. He changed his diet. He got a lot stronger. Um, added velocity and pitched well his last two years at Waynesburg. Season ends early last year, um, and so he is a graduate transfer. He goes to Gardner Webb. He uh, pursued an MBA um, while trying to, you know, increase his baseball exposure. And he was one of the hardest throwers in college this year. Uh, you know, he averaged 95 during the season, uh, topped out at 99. So it was it was just reinforcing that you know, yeah, you know, he he's he's still showing you this this mid 90s fastball and up that he showed all season and deep into games. Um, and I think as a as a smaller school guy, now they played some good teams, but as a smaller school guy, I, I think it it helped him a little bit. Again, you know, I don't know that. Well, I was going to say, I was trying to think of GMs. I saw like AJ Preller, although AJ Preller, I think scouts 24 seven. It's a bad example. Like I don't know that AJ Preller made a trip from San Diego to North Carolina 
during the season to see Mason Miller, but he got to see Mason Miller light up the radar gun, and he do, he does it pretty easy too, um, and he got to lay eyes on him in person. So I, th- I think that helps the Mason Miller. Waynesburg, by the way, southwest corner, south of of Pittsburgh. Yeah, a mere hour away from you, Jonathan. Yeah, come on, Jonathan. Why story? was he not on our list last year? I should have had my son apply to Waynesburg University, evidently, but missed missed that one. Shorter trip for you. No. Uh, all right. Next on our list is our first high school player, uh, right-handed pitcher out of the Woodlands Christian in Texas, Cademon Parker. Yeah, and that's another one of my guys. And it's, you know, they, they were pretty adaptable <laughs> at the combine. So, like I said, they were supposed to have a doubleheader Tuesday, and, and the forecast was terrible. And so on Monday, they decided they're just going to do like a BP session late at night. And then on Saturday after I left, they were supposed to play doubleheader. And they got one game in, and the forecast wasn't great. So they, they did a, a live BP session. You know, which is hitters throwing, you know, hitter, I'm sorry, pitchers throwing bullpens with hitters in the batter's box trying to hit against them. And, you know, for Parker, you know, we, we had him as kind of in that third round range. He had a good summer last year. He, he's 6'4, he's projectable, he's athletic, he's a wide receiver, kick returner, defensive back, punter for, for his, his, his high school team. And, you know, he, he was kind of inconsistent this spring. He had some back issues. Um, but, you know, he'd be 86 to 91 at times, 90 to 95 at others. Um, sometimes he, he'd show you pretty good breaking stuff. Other times they'd blend together. And in the live BP, he was, he was 92 to 95. He looked healthy. The breaking stuff looked good. So I, I think, you know, for, for him, it was important to show, yeah, you know, the this, this stuff's there. He's healthy. He looks good. So I, I think Kamon Parker, you know, has a chance to go around the third round of this draft. All right, and next up on the list is Brock Selvage, who was, uh, Jim, you mentioned before, left-handed pitcher out of Hamilton High School. He's number 176 on our top 250 prospects list. Yeah, and if, uh, you know, coming into the spring, he was a guy that uh, I don't remember where we had him uh, in our top 100 in, in the fall. Like, he, he was I think in much the higher with it. What's that? I think he was in the fifties. Yeah, with a and with an up arrow next to name. I mean, he seemed like the kind of high school arm who could have made a huge leap forward, except that his stuff really backed up over the course of the spring. Hamilton High School is the same school uh, that produced Cody Bellinger. Uh, for those of you curious, uh, very very good high school program in the kind of greater Phoenix Scottsdale area. And, you know, Selvage tease, you know, over the summer, he looked like the kind of guy who could, you know, we, we've talked a lot about Anthony Solometto in New Jersey as, you know, maybe the, the top prep lefty, like Selvage sounded like he might end up in that conversation, but he, he really wasn't throwing the ball well, his velo had backed up, his command wasn't good. Um, so it was, it was very encouraging to see him do what he did uh, right out of the gate uh, in, the, in the first combine games, uh, especially with the velocity. He was up to 95. Uh, he threw more strikes. Uh, he struck out five of the 10 batters he faced, mostly off of the fastball, showed off the, the low 80 slider as well. Uh, the fact that he was aggressive and went right after hitters uh, w- was key because that was something that was lacking, you know, for the spring. So now you have a guy who pitched well over the summer, pitched well in a situation like this. It might help some teams who are deciding, you know, well, can we take him, you know, high enough 
to sign him away from his LSU commitment uh, to see him sort of turn up uh, the dial a little bit in this kind of setting might give some teams a little more confidence to to make a run at him. I, I think he helped himself more than any player at the combine just from talking to teams. And I will make we we need a sponsor. We we should make bold pronouncements. We sponsored by whoever. I I think he gets drafted and gets a seven figure bonus. I, I think he showed Summer Brock Selvage there at the combine. Teams were very excited about that, and, and I think he's going to get paid. Um, very nicely in the draft. You were right. His uh, original ranking when we put out our top 100 draft prospects list back in December was number 57 in his trajectory. Uh, When we expanded to 150, he was number 113. Then when we expanded again, he dropped to 125 and then down to 176 uh, when we expanded to 250. Next up on the list is Parkview High School shortstop Ryan Spikes, Parkview High School in Georgia number 197 on our top 250 prospects list. Yeah, and he had three hits in, in the, one of the game he played in on Days Ran Together Me on Wednesdays when we played the first game. So he had three hits on Wednesday, and I think he stood out to guys. You know, he, he's got speed. He's got arm strength. Um, he's kind of similar to Ryan Bliss from Auburn, who, who's probably going to go in the top two or three rounds this year. Ryan Bliss was a Georgia high school product, five foot nine shortstop. Ryan Spikes is a five foot nine shortstop. He's got a he, he's more physical than Bliss was at the same time. He's got a better arm, so he has a chance to stay at short. Um, and I think the question on him is the bat. You know, on the showcase circuit, he hit fastballs. He struggled against breaking balls. I don't know that one game really made that reputation go away. But in the game I saw, he did have three hits. Um, he doesn't have a lot of experience at shortstop, but he looked pretty good there. And, and like I said, he's got a plus arm. He's quick. Um, he showed some tools. And I think for a guy who probably factors around the fourth or fifth round, I think he's fairly signable for a high school guy in that range. And so – you know, and that was another thing I was going to bring up. I, I think we'll, we'll see how many of these high school guys get drafted because the signability becomes an issue with them. But I think it helped guys. If you went to the combine as a high school player, you weren't saying, oh, I'm just going to sign for anything. But you were indicating to teams, look, I'm coming here for a week. I am very interested in turning pro. And, and I think that helps a little bit when you're trying to figure out what these high school guys want to do. Yeah, it's interesting on Spike because I remember, you know, over the the summer during the various showcase events and we would do top performers, he, he didn't make every list, but he was invariably mentioned by someone. Uh, and I think he was kind of a favorite of scouts just because of the way he he played and, uh, you know, the, the way he could attack a fastball. Um, so, you know, it was interesting to see him step up in, in another setting in front of a lot of people and and perform well. A guy who was not at all on the showcase circuit last summer uh, was Jacob Steinmetz, um, who's turning into a very fascinating prospect. He's from New York. Uh, normally, he attends the Hebrew Academy Five Towns and Rockaways uh, in, in, in Long Island. And he went down to Florida uh, to compete mostly at Elevate Academy and was really, really good. You know, and so Florida scouts who, you know, hadn't uh, hadn't seen him at all uh, were impressed. And he, he kind of held up. He, he backed up a little bit, as would be expected. Northeast kid who hadn't thrown a lot. Uh, but he's, you know, up to 94 uh, with a really good uh, curveball, like a really high spin rate. Uh, some people put plus on it. 
Uh, he's got a changeup. It was behind the other two, but he had some feel for it in the spring. Then he went back up to New York and continued to pitch well uh, in front of a whole other group of scouts. Um, and Jim, you know, one of our favorite cross checkers uh, really liked him down in Florida. Uh, and so for him to continue to pitch well, and you know, uh, understand, and I understand that it it wasn't a ideal game situation because of the, some of the weather issues, but evidently he continued to show himself well at the combine. Yeah, he did. He he did. He threw. He showed velocity. He showed a good curveball. You know, he was part of that live BP session. It was funny because somebody <laughs> that, that that cross checker told me he pitched well, and um, I was like, "What? He pitched?" Because I thought there was only one game on thir- on on Saturday, and I didn't see him in it. But it was, I, you know, and, and again, like I said, I, I think they did a nice job of adapting to to less than favorable weather conditions at time. And, you know, you know, the, you had a whole group of pitchers who were going to pitch in the second game, and they found a way for them to take the mound against competition, but in, you know, get it in quick, you know, before the rains came. So, uh, but yeah, it's, uh, and and it was also mentioned to me too, that, you know, just talking about his background and how the religion is going to affect when he can pitch, like, like teams thought like the interview process was really valuable to kind of get a sense of that from him as as to how that'll be handled at at the next level. Yeah. And he's, you know, he's, he's an Orthodox Jew. He was going to attend Fordham, uh, largely because it was, you know, somewhat close by, and he'd had that conversation because obviously college baseball takes place on the weekend. Uh, you know, my understanding is that he is willing to pitch on the Sabbath, but will have to be in close proximity. You know, so, you know, obviously different people have different comfort levels with what they're willing to do for people who are uninformed. If you're, you're really a religious Jew, you don't, you know, you don't use electricity, you don't ride in cars, uh, you know, anything that's perceived as work, you don't do. Um, you know, playing a game, you know, a catch in the park is fine, but like going into a stadium and and pitching, uh, you know, is a, is a whole different thing. So it'll be interesting to see, uh, you know, what teams were able to ascertain from him because stuff wise and projection wise, he's six foot five. There's a lot to like. Yep, and I would assume if he goes to college, that they would just have him be the Sunday starter, right? Right. Yeah, but but pro ball is obviously a different thing. Yeah. Yeah. All right, and the last name on our list as we recap some players who stood out at the first ever MLB Draft Combine is Tommy White, a third baseman from IMG Academy in Florida, number 103 on our top 250 draft prospects list. And uh, this is a guy who, you know, I noticed in our story on Tuesday's metrics leaders, uh, his name was all over the place. A couple of the top 10 uh, hardest hit balls had the highest average exit velocity, um, and the most hard hit balls of anyone in that BP session. Now, this was, I think, primarily or maybe exclusively, Jim, a uh, high school uh, round of BP. And But then on Friday, uh, when you look at the same list of, uh, of leaders, his name is also in there, but with almost entirely college players, had one of the four, had the fourth hardest hit ball, uh, third highest average exit velocity, uh, it, it seems like uh, Tommy White kind of stood out among the high school hitters. Yeah, and just before Jonathan comments on him because he's Jonathan's guy, but you, you're right. The, the, the Tuesday BP session was thrown together after they had to cancel the double headers. So the double header that day, which was for well, only high school players were going to play in games. So yes, and, and I had the same impression as well. When you look at those leaderboards, it's a lot of college guys, which isn't surprising because they're older, bigger, stronger. But Tommy White, you know, stood out 
with those guys as much as any of the high school guys did. Him and an unranked first baseman from Nevada named Jacob Walsh probably you know hit the ball harder and farther than than any other high school players did consistently on Friday. And and he's interesting. I'm gonna I'm gonna reference the same cross checker again because he really likes Tommy White. He thinks that he's one of the best high school bats uh, he's seen. Uh, and really believes in in the bat. You think he's you know he's got a chance uh, to hit and hit for power. I think the one question was whether or not he'd stick at third, but I think he's he's improved his conditioning, and more people think that he can. And even if he can't, uh, he has a chance to hit enough to play first. You know, right-handed, right-handed hitting first baseman out of high school. That's not great in terms of draft status, but. Uh, there are a lot of people who really think the bat's going to play. And I think the, the metrics, you know, that he showed off during the combine sort of speak to that, you, you know, is that IMG Academy, um, you know, so he's had to face some good competition and he hit all spring. So this was kind of a continuation of what he was able to do. So maybe it's a slightly limited profile, but there are a lot of teams who, you know, if you have a high school hitter who can really hit, uh, you know, he's going to go off the board pretty well with the knowledge that this draft class, uh, you know, if there is a strength, it might be uh, among the high school bat section of it. All right. You're listening to the MLB Pipeline podcast. I'm Jason Ratliff here with Jim Callis and Jonathan Mayo. Just recap the inaugural MLB draft combine. Uh, we're going to continue talking draft here for a little bit before we have an interview with D-back scouting director, Derek Ladner. Uh, College World Series. Uh, Jim? You you humbly told us uh, before we started the show that you predicted this final in print. In print, in I, print. I have evidence. If you look at the pipeline inbox from uh, how far in advance? Uh, before it started. Before it started, I I, I called Mississippi in State. February. And no, I'm just kidding. No, no, it was uh, it was at the outset of the College World Series. I did have Vanderbilt meeting Mississippi State, although I did not uh, I did not predict all. Didn't the, see how it was going to happen. Yeah, I did not uh, have coronavirus playing a role in that. Never, uh, yeah, never doubt the coronavirus, Jim. I think we've we've learned that to this point. <sighs> uh, all right, so let's talk about uh, let's do this as a prospect preview. The Vanderbilt squad, obviously loaded with prospects, uh, led by the dynamic duo of Jack Leiter and Kumar Rocker. They have seven players on our top 250 draft prospects list. Mississippi State, led by Will Bednar. Um, in the story that we wrote previewing, uh, there were four, but they have three there as. Uh, you guys can get into this, but one of the uh, one of the top 250 prospects not there with it. Yeah, yeah, Eric Sarantola, who, who's probably got the best, you know, raw stuff on Mississippi State's pitching staff. Um, but the operative word is raw. Um, you know, pitched his way out of their rotation about a month into the season, and has barely pitched since then. They they used him for about six innings in the last two or three months of the season, and he was actually at the combine and not on Mississippi State's. College World Series roster. So I have not, we're recording this Monday morning. I have not seen the official mat pitching matchups, but I would assume that we will see Christian McLeod for Mississippi State, um, who's a lefty with a deceptive fastball and a plus curveball. I, I, you know, he's probably a second or third round pick. I, I would think he would get the start on the mound for the Bulldogs against Jack Leiter, who did was. I don't know if Jack Leiter would have pitched on Saturday before that game was declared no contest, but Jack Leiter now has a full week's rest, full week of worst came to speak full week's worth of rest is what I'm trying to say after striking out 15 
in eight innings, but taking a one nothing loss in his first College World Series start. So I would think we would get Leiter versus McLeod tonight. Um, Kumar Rocker pitched Friday. I would think we would probably see him in Wednesday's winner-take-all game if we get that far. You know, I don't know about Will Bednar, who has a chance to go in the first round. He also struck out 15 in just six innings in his first start. And then because they lost the semifinal game to Texas, they had to come back and play the Longhorns again. He pitched Saturday. So it would be four days rest. These guys usually have six. I would anticipate if we do get to Wednesday, it very well could be Bednar versus Rocker. And I think at the very least, you'll see, you know, maybe if they, if, one of them comes out of the pen, you know, and a need if it's needed kind of kind of deal. We'll, we'll see how that works. Although it may make more sense since they've only started to have them stick to a starting routine. Uh, but yeah, I agree that if we see them, that would be a really exciting game three matchup. You know, uh, one bat that sort of jumped out at me, and both of these teams are in Jim's kind, you know, part of the country, so I, I don't know them as as well. Obviously, we all know Lighter and Rocker. Uh, I've been following Bednar because he's from the Pittsburgh area. His older brother David pitches for the Pirates now. But the the guy that sort of I really like is Tanner Allen, who's you know number 138, um, and he's 23 years old. But uh, you know, every at bat I saw was was a professional at bat. You know, took a lot of pitches, a lot of barreling up the baseball. I just really like the way he plays, and I think that. He's the kind of player who, uh, you know, again, when I keep talking about the dearth of college bats, I think that's going to help him. You know, he may be a bit of a money saver because of his age, but he's a money saver with some tools and the, the ability to play. You can really hit. So I could see him, you know, you don't know how much of an impact the College World Series is going to have. It is a smaller sample size. Uh, teams have a sense of who they like, but I could see a guy like Tanner Allen going from being like maybe he's a fourth rounder to maybe he's a third rounder or the touches the back end of the second for a team that needs to save some money and 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 use him later on. I could easily see him going in the second round, Jonathan, just because, you know, I mean, he's been draft eligible. This is his third year in a row. So he's 23. He's a little bit older, but it's not a good year for college bats. And he can really hit. You know, he was on Team USA two years ago. Um, he's leading the SEC in hitting. And, you know, he used his he, – he broke his handmate last year. So he, he barely played and he wasn't 100% and he wound up not fitting into the draft last year. But but for a guy who was a fringy runner and kind of fringy athlete in the past, he, he really worked on that during the pandemic downtime. So, he, I mean, he's not a, a blazer, but he'll, you know, he'll show you solid speed now at, at times. He's moving better. He could probably play – you know, might be able to play all four corners. So he, he's a super interesting guy. And I just I was going to plug real quick, you know, besides all the guys for this year's draft, we could see a lot of future first round picks playing key roles uh, in this. You know, Vanderbilt's got shortstop Carter Young for 22, their leadoff hitter, outfielder Enrique Bradfield and, and right hander Patrick Riley for 23 and Christian Little, who, who should be a high school senior, but graduated early for 24. All those guys could be first round picks, as could, you know, ace bullpen uh, you know, weapon for the Bulldogs in Landon Sims is a first rounder next year and they're catching Logan Tanner might be too. So we could, if you count the, the Bednar, Rocker, Lighter, and the Zarya, we might even have nine first round picks in this, uh, in this entire college world series, you know, in the finals. All right. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk to D-backs scouting director, Derek Ladner on the MLB pipeline podcast. 
talking about erectile dysfunction isn't easy. Usually, we just brush it off or blame ourselves, saying things like, I lost my mojo. Or we avoid it altogether with excuses like, I had a long day at work, or sorry, honey, I'm just not feeling it. But with Roman, it is easy to talk about. With a real healthcare professional who can prescribe real medication, it's simple, safe, and totally discreet. With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation and ongoing care for ED, all from the comfort and privacy of your home. The healthcare professional will work with you to find the best treatment plan. If medication is appropriate, Roman will ship it to you with free two-day shipping. The whole process is straightforward, simple, and discreet. Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com MLB and complete an online visit. Erectile dysfunction used to be tough to tackle, but now there's Roman. Complete an online visit today to connect with a healthcare professional and take care of it. Go to GetRoman.com MLB today. If approved, you'll get $15 off your first order of ED treatment. Roman is the official partner of Major League Baseball. That's GetRoman.com MLB. GetRoman.com MLB. Happy to welcome to the MLB Pipeline podcast, the scouting director of the Arizona Diamondbacks, Derek Ladnier. Derek, thank you for taking some time. Absolutely, Jonathan. Thank you. So I, I want to start with the fact that, you know, we're, the calendar's about to flip to July, and here we are still talking about and preparing for the draft. I know for me, uh, it's weird. Like, I feel like we should be all done with this. I know you and I have talked about it. How strange has this new schedule been for you and, and others who have, you know, been doing this a, a long time? Um, it, actually, it, it's funny that you asked that question. I was seeing a player on June 15th the other day, and I was thinking to myself, I said, most of the time I would be ready to get back home, see my family for a few days, and get ready to go out and see some of our affiliates or start some showcase baseball. And I said, we're still scouting for the draft. It's, it's just been it's been odd, quite frankly, like, like your, your clock, cause I've been doing this for a long time. Your clock says the draft should be over. And then you look at the, the calendar and you go, wow, we still got three weeks before the draft or two weeks before the draft. It's like, Oh my God. It's, it's like just trying to fill in the blanks. And, and um, obviously it gives you more time with your staff to have various calls and, and meetings leading up to the draft. And, um, but, it, but it has been an adjustment and not just for me, but for a lot of my colleagues that I've spoken with, they, they kind of feel the same way. Has it been beneficial, especially given that, you know, last year and, and more importantly for this year's class, the summer, yeah, the, the, like the high school showcase time was, you know, you more or less got everything, but, uh, you know, no Cape Cod League, no U.S. national team. You know, so the entire industry was kind of behind on the college guys. Does, has this extra time, whether it's because you can scout Super Regionals in the College World Series uh, you know, the College World Series typically is after the draft uh, or, or have more private workouts and, and meetings with players. Is that, is that a, a net positive because of that time missed with the pandemic? Oh, yeah, absolutely. But because like you said, you know, last year we weren't able to get all of the type of information that we normally would. So, you know, being able to evaluate players for as long as possible has been extremely beneficial. And, and then, you know, and even like during the summer showcase, I've had some of my scouts talk about the fact that some of these guys were showing up and facing velocity, especially the hitters. And, you know, they hadn't seen a live pitch in forever. So um, just the extended period to be able to see these guys, I think, has been extremely beneficial. What, you know, whether 
I've been there, you know, watching them or whether I've been able to watch them on television, whatever the case may be. I think it's been invaluable, especially for this year. How heavily do you, you know, do you guys scout? And I guess I'm, you guys can be the Diamondbacks, but, you know, just in general, like I said, normally, you know, it's conference tournaments is kind of that, that end line where that's heavily scouted. And maybe you have guys keeping an eye on regionals, super regional and college world series is after the fact. And you just hope your guys that you just took, don't get hurt. Um, it, you know, you're all human beings. So some there's gotta be a recency bias. So if a guy goes out and is amazing in the college world series, like how much of an impact can that have when this is something that never even entered into the conversation before? Um, sometimes, I mean, most of the time leading up to it, you have a pretty good idea of the players that you have interest in and, you know, one good or bad performance isn't necessarily going to sway your opinion. You know, obviously you want guys that you're considering to go out and dominate like, like we all do, but, um, I wouldn't say it's necessarily, um, a negative if a guy goes out and doesn't have a good game, because, you know, like we've said, we've been, we've been watching these kids, especially the college kids you know, their entire careers and, and from high school all the way through college and, and everybody has a bad day. I mean, unless there's something physically wrong with the individual, you know, it wouldn't necessarily affect it. Just, we just kind of strike it up to a bad day and, you know, and I don't think it's necessarily going to sway our opinion on the player. Yeah. I, I would actually think that if it would have any impact, it would be in the other way, in the other direction, right. not to say a guy at the, at the top of the draft, but maybe like you're picking in the back end of the first round or even a second rounder or something like that. And it cements a guy, in, you know, in, into place uh, when you were kind of like, well, maybe yes, maybe no. And then bright lights. I mean, that's a big spotlight college world series right. go out and pitch, pitch or hit extremely well. I, you know, I would imagine maybe that's where it would have you know, more of a positive upswing than a, than a negative impact. Yeah, I would agree with you. I, I think if, if, um, let's say a position player goes out and just dominates under the big lights and, you know, not that you had any questions about them, but they go out and they perform under that stage. I would say that someone could, could probably move themselves up the board versus necessarily somebody moving themselves down the board. Right. What, you know, uh, I'm going to be very careful because, you know, I, I know scouting directors well enough not to ask about specific players this close to the draft. You can't tip your hat, but like in general, what would you say, uh, are the are the strengths of the draft and you know your position you know picking six to sort of probably speak more about the top of the draft and the strengths there but it, maybe you can sort of talk about like where are the strengths there and then if you see an overall uh, strength to the to this class um, I mean I think we're all pretty much aware of all the guys on the top end of of everybody's board for the most part the the, the one area that I will say has been somewhat unique this year are some of the high school shortstops hitters yeah. that, um, you know, some may think that they can play shortstop. Some may think that they can't play shortstop, but the intrigue is that there's a lot of really good hitters, uh, especially in the high school ranks that, that I think are going to put themselves in, in a really good position to be drafted. And, and you know, that's just, that's just, that's just not coming from me. That's, um, you know, coming from everybody because I mean, it's just, it's, it's really deep. I mean, I've, I've never seen so many guys that we really love their bats and, and, you know, then we debate whether or not they can play shortstop or have to move to another position, but there's, there's a lot of really good high school hitters out there. Yeah. A chance to have four high school shortstops go in the top 10. That's never happened <laughs> in the history of the draft. I like, I, I was surprised. I thought, Oh, it must've happened once or twice. I mean, everyone loves a, a good high school infielder, but Never happen if if that's what comes to pass. Those if those four guys go in the top ten, it'll be 
a draft first. Yeah, and 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 even after that, there's there's still another, you know, there's a good group of those same guys, maybe not to the level to what you're talking about, but there's a big group of those guys that uh, you know put themselves in pretty good positions by really strong showings this spring. I want to ask sort of in a general sense, you've been in the position of picking number one overall uh, in, in the past. Um, you know, you took Dansby Swanson. No, you, no, you didn't get to hold on to him for uh, maybe as long as you would <laughs> like, but that's baseball, right? But uh, right. just, you know, can you give a little insight into like how, you know, what that process is like? And you don't have any insight into what the Pirates do or how they do it, but just in a general sense of preparing and the pressure that comes with, with, having that first pick because I know there is a certain amount of pressure that you don't you don't want to get you don't want to get any pick wrong especially in the first round but when you when you're one one that's like yeah that you know there's got to be a little extra pressure right to make sure that uh that you you get an impact player there yeah it, it is I mean it's you, you definitely have a bullseye on your back and and you know every year you're at the mercy of the draft and the level of talent that you know is necessarily available for that pick but um, you know, throughout the course of the year, you're watching, you know, you narrow it down to probably four or five guys that you're really bearing down on. But at the end of the day, you know, everybody's watching um, and everybody's watching every ballpark that you're in and reporting every ballpark that you're in or the general manager is there or the assistant GM or a vice president or scouting directors there. So there is a heightened awareness as to where, you know, the Pittsburgh Pirates are this year, you know every ballpark they're in people are speculating that they're going to take this guy or, or, or this other guy. And, and at the end of the day, you know, you, you hope that you're put in a position to be able to take a guy that's a, you know, a game changer for the organization. And, you know, you hope, hope for the best. And then, you know, if the player doesn't end up being that type of a guy, then there's additional scrutiny, obviously on the selection of the player and then additional scrutiny on the team that selected him. Does that give you more patience for like, wanting to know what, what's going to happen in the number one pick? Or are you, you know, picking six saying like, can you just, can you just tell us what direction you're going in so we can sort of try to figure out what our board's going to look like? Yeah, no, I mean, we, it is. I mean, you just sit there and, you know, we hear all of the rumors and we, you know, and you scout the scouts and you see who's doing what, but at the end of the day, you know, we'll have, you know, six guys on our board that we want and what order we get them in will be indicative as to who is selected with the five picks before us. So that, that's pretty much the way it works. And, and if we had a guy that was ranked higher on our board that we get at six, then that's always a bonus. It seems to me, and taking nothing away with, you know, whatever the pirates do and whoever they, they take at all, this is a year just because there isn't the, there isn't the one runaway guy who like has to be number one. Now I'm sure you have your favorites and, and things of that nature, there isn't Steven Strasburg in this draft. One of those where everyone knows who, who that, you know, that guy is going to be. Is this, is this a good year to pick where you guys are picking just because you can kind of, as you said, you can sit and react and maybe there's not that much separating those six guys that you have on your board. Yeah. I mean, honestly it is. I mean, you you can sit there and you can evaluate the level of talent that you're going to get, not only with six pick, but maybe the, four or five picks that come after your pick because, you know, we're going to like those guys as well, as well. And, you know, and what, what teams do above us? I mean, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe they end up taking a guy that they can save some money on and, you know, sign somebody else later on. I mean, there's different ways to, to use strategy with regards to picking high in the draft. And if you don't feel like that player is, you know, a complete 
you know, bonus pool player, maybe, maybe they use their money in a different way. I mean, that, that, that could, you know, be applied to anybody's picking, obviously, in the top 10. So I think that just comes down to strategy, what you feel like you want to get and whether or not you're going to sacrifice talent to do that type of a strategy. And I think every organization looks at it, you know, wholly, completely, and then makes decisions as, as the draft unfolds. How many people in general, um, and, you know, you can speak specifically to the Diamondbacks, when, when you're deciding, you know, who goes number one, it, it's not just you. It's not just, uh, you know, Amiel Sade. It, you know, it's not just, you know, your general manager. Like, can you explain sort of the process of, like, how, how a decision is made, especially in the first round? As the draft goes on, I know it sort of starts falling more to, to the scouts and things like that. But that first pick, there are a lot of hands that get involved, right? Yeah, I mean that's. I mean that starts with ownership, honestly. I mean, I mean you you can go all the way down, and then, you know, I, I like to think that all of our people are involved, even our cross checkers and scouts, because they they've worked their rear ends off to to put us in a position. They've they've acquired the information, they've evaluated the player, you know, they've seen the player more than we have. So so I don't want to say ultimately it comes down to the general manager or the vice president or the scouting director. It does when we make the selection, but I don't want to minimize the work that has been done with the national cross checkers, the regional cross checkers, the area scouts, all of our analytic department. It, it is when you when you make that pick, it is what I would say is the ultimate team effort. And then, you know, we get to be the ones that make the selection. But it is it is a group effort when we make those selections. And and, and honestly, Jonathan, that, that goes with every selection, honestly. Like like we we put in a lot of work and and I want everyone to understand all the people that are involved in actually selecting that player. Yeah, I want to actually give a chance to sort of broaden it out because we, we, we tend, on, you know, on my end, especially we focus so much on that first round, right? The first round's on on TV. Although, you know, we're going to have some of day two on, on regular TV before we switch to internet only. Uh, but you find big leaguers up and down, you know, the board and, you know, you and I have talked enough that, you know, you have some guys that you took super late that you're as proud of as guys you took, you know, number two overall. So, you know, I'll give you this opportunity to sort of talk about uh, the work that your scouting staff has to do. And may, especially this year where because of the pandemic and because things were, you know, were shut down over the summer and even the fall was somewhat limited the amount of scrambling that must have had to happen this year to be ready for 20 rounds of a draft. Uh, I, I can't, I can't even imagine. So I want to give you the opportunity to sort of shine a light on the work that, that I know you're proud of your staff doing. Oh my God. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, when we started out the season, there were so many different protocols that were in place with regards to the number of tickets and who could come and American league guys could come on one weekend, national league guys um, on one weekend and just trying to balance out, um, everybody's schedule, but I'll be honest when, when we told the guys like, Hey, it's time to go out and start, it's time to start doing your job again. You know, everybody was, you know, so ready for the opportunity to go out and start making an impact, starting with our area scouts and part-time scouts and cross checkers. And, you know, they, they knew we were picking high in the draft and we pick high in the draft and, and I mean, in every round. So they realized the importance of this. And, and these guys have been honestly, uh, just marvelous in their work ethic and obviously the sacrifices they've made all spring to, to put us in a position to where, you know, we've, we're going to feel really good once we finalize the board and, and just trying to play, 
you know, catch up. I mean, last year during the winter, even during the winter leading before we even started scouting, all of our guys were involved in Zoom calls with all of the players, you know, and that's in, you know, September, October, November, December. Um, we're having conference calls with all of these players just to try to get them to, you know, to know them a little bit better leading into um, the draft. And and so it was, it was probably more effort put in, in than any year I've ever been involved in this just because of the dynamics and the challenges that we were faced with COVID. And, and I, I couldn't be more proud of, of the guys. All right. Well, now, you know, I'm going to go back to focusing on the number six pick. Here's your opportunity to break news and just tell me who you're taking now. It'll save me a lot of time and trouble. You know, that's never going to happen, Jonathan. <laughs> well, I had to try, right? I had to give it a uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Eric, thank you so much uh, for, for joining me today. And uh, good luck as you line your boards up. Jonathan, thanks so much. Best to all you guys, okay? Always good to spend some time with someone who has been in the scouting game for as long as Derek Ladnier. The Diamondbacks, of course, picked number six overall. So he's got a good vantage point for how things are going to unfold in that first round. Right. That should wrap up our draft talk uh, for today, at least until the mailbag section. But we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to take a look at the two newest members of the top 100 prospects list here on the MLB Pipeline podcast. This past year has shown us that without your health, you have nothing. If you're not well, you can't work, look after yourself, or take care of your family. You can't enjoy the life you've worked so hard to build. That's why you need to prioritize taking care of your long-term health today, before it goes from good to bad to worse. So invest in your long-term health with Forward. Forward is intelligent medicine with a personal touch. Their doctors are dedicated to catching top killers like cancer and heart disease early before it's too late. And catching them early could save you tens of thousands of dollars in the long run. Everyone's health history is different, which is why Forward doctors personalize a health plan with you, based on your genetics, lifestyle, and biometrics to achieve long-term results and ensure nothing gets missed. It's time to invest in a doctor that's invested in you. Go to GoForward.com today to protect your future health. That's GoForward.com. GoForward.com. Welcome back to the MLB Pipeline Podcast. Jason Ratliff here with Jim Callis and Jonathan Mayo, and we are into our introduction of the newest Top 100 Prospects. Uh, we've been doing this for several weeks now as guys graduate from the Top 100 Prospects list and new guys move in. Uh, we're breaking them down for you, and this week we have two, uh, Logan Gilbert and Trevor Larnick both graduated and uh, they were uh, replaced on the list by Blue Jays catcher Gabriel Moreno and Kansas City Royals first base pro prospect Nick Prado. Um, let's start off with Moreno and I would say that this is a guy whose name uh, pretty much every time we had replaced someone on the top 100 prospects list to this point this year. We heard a lot of uh, grumbling about why it was not Gabriel Moreno, and now it is. Well, well, I think the reason, as we all know, is that Jonathan hates all Toronto Blue Jays catching prospects. That is First, that is correct. Alejandro Kirk and now Gabriel Moreno and Sam Dykstra and I begged Jonathan for weeks to let us rank Gabriel Moreno, and he finally acquiesced. And I'm I'm exaggerating that tremendously, but um, <laughs> yeah. Does it feel to you guys like we've had more top 100 replacements? at the beginning of the season than we usually do? Because it, it, it does to me. 
I, yeah, I'd have to go back to, I guess, to 2019 to, to really, to, to take a closer look. Maybe it's just, you know, we had, you know, so few last year. Um, but it does seem like a lot of guys have made it up to the big leagues or maybe they made it up last year, but because the season was so much shorter, uh, there are a bunch of them who hadn't graduated yet and we're getting that now. Yeah, it feels like that. You know, and they they changed the service time rules last year to include you know, for for rookies to include September time, but it just feels like it's two or three guys every week. And and, I, and it's I want to say I, I think the Blue Jays, we we've added three Blue Jays since the season started. You know, Kirk who graduated, Alec Manoa, and now Moreno. I, I know I do the Indians, and we've added three Indians, but I, I think the Blue Jays who who have a system on the rise have had as many guys join the top 100 as anyone. And, and Moreno is just you know, great international scouting. You know, they signed him out of Venezuela for $25,000. Um, you know, he, he was not a big ticket guy back in 2016. He can really hit. I, I can remember literally before the combine, the last bit of work I did on the road for MLB pipeline was I was in blue Jays, uh, spring training in 2020, like right before the pandemic hit and talking to Gil Kim, their, their farm director slash big league coach um, about players on the rise in the system. And, and we were talking about the catching depth and, and Kirk and Moreno and, you know, Moreno off to a great start this year. He's hitting 373 with, with an ops of almost 1100. He's already got eight homers. His career high before that was 12. And he's a really offensive minded catcher. He may, he makes a lot of hard contact. Um, you know, I, I think he's a guy who can hit for power and average, you know, he doesn't walk a lot just because he puts the ball in place so much. But like I said, when he puts it in play, he does a lot of damage. Um, you know, he's got some quickness and athleticism behind the plate. You know, he's, he's got to polish up the receiving. Um, but, you know, th- that's true, I think, of, of just about any young catcher. He's got a solid arm uh, and, and yet another interesting catching prospect in the Jays system. I'll talk about Nick Prado, who's, who's a guy we've known about for, for some time. And uh, frankly, it, it's a little surprising, you know, that we weren't talking about him sooner. You know, he was a guy that coming out uh, of the 2017 draft when the Royals took him in the middle of the first round, he was one of the it seemed to be one of the best pure high school hitters in the class. And then he just kind of lost his way. He lost his approach, uh, rung up really high strikeout totals uh, that that impacted his ability to produce his 2019 in particular. When he moved to high A was was very rough. He finished with a 588 ops. And then this year, he he came out of the gate just looking like the Nick Prado that we hoped we would see. Um, he slowed down a little bit this month, but the, the biggest thing has been his approach. There's still some some swing and miss, um, but uh, he's drawing a ton of walks. He leads the double A central in ops with uh, he's at 1036. Uh, you know, he, his on base percentage uh, is in the top five, he is second in slugging, he's you know, tied for the league lead in homers with 13. He's even stolen some bases and he's a, a, an outstanding defender at first. He's very athletic. He's got a really good arm. He was a good pitcher in, in high school. Um, you know, so he was a guy that I was excited for him to look, it looks like, uh, as he's moved to, to double a that he's figuring it out and, you know, he's 22 for all of this year. Uh, so in a lot of ways, uh, you know, as much as he struggled his first two years, the Royals have been moving him one rung at a time. And, and now he's at the young end of guys in, in double A and, and performing well. So I'm hoping that he can maintain this and stay within that approach. 
and uh, he's starting to get more to the power. He may end up being a little bit more power than hit. Uh, when he entered pro ball, you know, I thought he was going to be kind of one of these uh, guys who hits a ton and we'll see how much power. Uh, but that's often the case. I think as long as he continues to look at pitches, uh, this is the, the, the guy he's showing he is now is the guy we're going to see as he continues to move up the ladder. All right, let's move right along and wrap up our episode for today by answering some questions from the mailbag. We have a couple to answer. Uh, the first one comes from Ivy Futures, says, hi, Jim. Uh, so, Jim, I guess we'll let you answer this one. In a non-prospect capacity, any word on schedule slash times for each respective day of the draft? Well, that should be simple. Yeah, and you know, I, I'm glad we're answering this because I get asked this. You probably do too, Jonathan. I, I think on a daily basis by fans, agents, you know, basically, I, I, I'm sure I will get asked again later today. And we actually had multiple questions when I sent out a, a request for, for Twitter questions for the podcast. But here we go. On day one, which is June 11th, Sunday. July. The dra- oh, you're, there you go. See, I'm already messing up. July well, he 11th. Got, he just asked for the times, not the days. So. <laughs> well, he needs to know what he needs to set his, his calendar correctly. Otherwise, he's got to get his DeLorean fixed so he can go back to June 11th. Yeah, you guys didn't see, but uh, Marcel Meyer was the number one overall pick by the Pirates. My, I'm going to go 30 or 29 for 29 the mock because the draft was actually on June 11th, and I know all the picks. So let's try that again. July 11th, which is a Sunday, uh, the draft will begin at 7 Eastern time and be preceded by a draft preview show for an hour at 6 p.m. Eastern. That will pre- consist of only the first round, and the supplemental first round. I, you see a lot of people, Jonathan, this is a pet peeve of mine. A lot of people keep talking about day one picks and referring to guys in the top two rounds. The second round will not be on day one. So people should stop doing that. Day two, uh, Monday, July, not June, but July 12th, the draft will begin at one o'clock Eastern time and will consist of rounds two through 10. And day three, which will be Tuesday, July 13th, and will consist of rounds 11 through 20 will begin at noon Eastern time. So 7 Eastern on July 11th, 1 Eastern on July 12th, and noon Eastern on July 13th. All right. So Jim went back in time to answer that question. Now for our second question, he's going to look ahead, or Jim and Jonathan Jonathan can. Uh, question comes from Joshua Betts. Ask, will draft picks ever be able to be traded? So uh, if you don't have your crystal balls out, please get them out. Uh, Joshua says, seems that would help teams and add intrigue. I I agree that it would add both of those things. Uh, I would love to see it happen. I've talked to scouts who I think would be interested to see it happen. You know, they they've had the ability in the past where you could trade the comp picks, uh, but only during certain times. And, and uh, you know, and, and it's not been a universal thing. Uh, I think what he's referring to is, you know, when uh, in some of the other sports, when they have deals on draft day, uh, you know, where teams trade up and and things of that nature. And uh, I I think it would add a lot of excitement. I hope it gets added. I was kind of hoping that the ability to trade comp picks was sort of uh, Major League Baseball dipping its toes into the waters of of doing this. Uh, But I have not heard of any. you know, grassroots movement or, or any any movement in the direction of, of making that a larger part of the draft landscape. Yeah. And, and you know, as you know, Jonathan, you could trade. It's only the competitive balance picks. You can't even trade free agent compensation picks. And, you know, for years, 
I sense kind of like there was a pretty strong 50-50 split. You had I, I would talk to people in baseball who wanted to see this happen, and I talked to other people in baseball who didn't like the idea at all. Um, that they thought that you might have agents manipulate the draft and drive players to specific teams um, by saying they would only sign with a specific club. I do think that's softened. I, I do think there's from you know when we talk to, to teams and scouting directors, there's more interest in this. It would give you more assets to trade. You know, as uh, you know, while you're in the middle of a pennant race, you know maybe you would put a caveat and not allow teams to trade picks you know, longer than X years into the future or after the first couple rounds. Um, I agree with you. It would be intriguing. It would be fun to see. It would actually make our jobs a lot more difficult. Um, so from a selfish standpoint, um, you, you talk to writers cover the NFL and they say trying to figure out what's going to go on the draft is impossible because one thing we benefit from is I think a lot of times teams are fairly open with us talking players that they like because they don't have to worry. Like if you're talking to, I'm just randomly picking out a team here, the Cardinals at 18 and you find out, Oh boy, they really like Gunnar Hogland um, or, or whoever they don't have to worry about, Oh, the Yankees getting wind of that and trading up from 20 and making a trade with the Reds to move to 17 to get Gunnar Hogland. So <laughs> I, I would like to see it. It would make for a, an interesting broadcast if you had more moving parts, but I think from the mock draft standpoint, it would definitely make our lives lives a lot more difficult. Well, I'm, will, I'm willing to take on that, that burden, Jonathan, if you are. Me too. Whatever we can do to help the game, we're willing to do. They're in. Let's do it. All right, that's going to be a wrap for this week's MLB Pipeline podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode. If you're enjoying the show or have any suggestions, leave us a rating and a review. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you next week. Talking about erectile dysfunction isn't easy. Usually, we just brush it off or blame ourselves, saying things like, I lost my mojo. Or we avoid it altogether with excuses like, I had a long day at work, or sorry, honey, I'm just not feeling it. But with Roman, it is easy to talk about. With a real healthcare professional who can prescribe real medication, it's simple, safe, and totally discreet. With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation and ongoing care for ED, all from the comfort and privacy of your home. The healthcare professional will work with you to find the best treatment plan. If medication is appropriate, Roman will ship it to you with free two-day shipping. The whole process is straightforward, simple, and discreet. Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com MLB and complete an online visit. Erectile dysfunction used to be tough to tackle, but now there's Roman. Complete an online visit today to connect with a healthcare professional and take care of it. Go to GetRoman.com MLB today. If approved, you'll get $15 off your first order of ED treatment. Roman is the official partner of Major League Baseball. That's GetRoman.com slash MLB. GetRoman.com slash MLB. 